So welcome to episode 14.2. Yeah, part two. Part two of our anger management. And um, at Rethinking Trauma and Transition, we are challenging the stigma that surrounds trauma and the concepts of the healing that goes along with that through our podcast. We aim to empower you, the listener, and ourselves in our experiences of these challenges, providing the knowledge and the language necessary to embark on a transformative journey towards a more fulfilling life. We do. So this week, Rich, we're getting more into the problem solving, aren't we? We are, we are. Because we spent quite a bit of time in the last episode talking about the emotions and the negative and the positive aspects behind anger so how we'll give a quick recap if mm-hmm. so the negative aspects of anger can be rage they can be hurt they can be all sorts of toxic things then you've got the positive aspect which can help people get over a threshold of say wanting to quit smoking or some other habit leaving a relationship where they get upset with being in a point of diminishing returns and no longer see themselves being doing that kind of thing anymore and we spent a bit quite quite a bit of time talking about the i suppose the communication and the language skills that sometimes are useful in those situations about how we end up in those confrontations and that while anger might seem like an aggressive act it's actually at its core a defensive act Mm -hmm. well you can consider anger of being in a bucket and so if it obviously gets that bucket gets topped up then that anger will overflow and leak out the top of the bucket as that would be then considered like an anger outburst. Or if that, if you're dipping in and out that anger, taking it out, yeah, letting go of all that anger, taking some out, scoop at a time, then that, that won't build up as bad as it is. You'll have, maintain a certain level of anger. And then there's also where that bucket may get topped up but it's got a little puncher in there. And with that little puncher, that water will seep out. It's like anger dissipating itself through a very slow process. That would almost be, I suppose, over the passage of time where the thing that initially was the point of contention through time itself loses any context or any power because it becomes irrelevant. Yeah. That's a point. And, and you moved, and that person has then moved on from that situation because there's no point holding on to it anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, we also talked about what happens when we do hold on to it, and yeah. that that almost that submerging of the anger and mm. it being corrosive. That actually, in, in almost the denial of that expression of emotion, we we are at risk of long term harm to ourselves. Yeah, well, you mentioned about these um, 
heaps of not coal, but all the coal waste and the burning embers that could be hidden underneath that. Mm -hmm. The coal bins, yeah. Yeah, that's one. Mm -hmm. We talked about sometimes the fact that those embers are unacknowledged. We almost forget that they are there. Yet, because they haven't been addressed, because they haven't been put out, mm -hmm. they are continuing to be that deep down unstabilizing force, just yeah. looking for a point where we may even be unaware that they, they, that they will breach the surface. And that's where we get those sudden outbursts of anger, those uncontrollable what feels like uncontrollable rage that we can't always pinpoint to one thing or where something that that seems inconsequential to somebody else becomes a major major point of contention for us mm -hmm. because it suddenly feeds those embers and fans them into flame yeah so we're going to talk about some of the solutions to that then and one of the things i think that was interesting in the last discussion was that concept of threshold and that sometimes anger can be utilized or channeled in a positive direction as a means for change, as a source of energy and activation for change. So the question is, does all anger lead to aggression? The answer is no. So you may look at um, a sport such as, say, rugby, American football, or even on the athletics track, where someone's going to have a, an aggressive attitude about getting that ball running faster on the track, whatever it is. Who's that person angry with? No one. They're just utilising their aggression in an assertive manner to go and win that game, to go and be the best of what they can in their particular field of endeavour. Is that a bit like creating state and yeah. accessing state? So there's almost that, if I recognise the feelings and what and how I experience it, I can recreate that at will. So there's not necessarily a trigger in the traditional sense, because the trigger is our own choices. Yeah. Well, you think about it, it's all to do with um, physiology. She can cover something in a bit later if you want. Mm -hmm. So in that aggressive state, that person is thinking clearly. Whereas in a um, more emotive, angry state, that person, their judgment will be clouded due to how the heart rate goes on. Mm -hmm. You could also think about aggressive being aggressive in another context, such as, say, um, a bank robber. And that bank robber, obviously, is holding up the bank. They want the cash. They've been highly aggressive towards the staff and any customers in there. They just want to get that money out there, and whatever other loot they can secure, as quick and fast as possible, with hopefully doing as minimum damage to everybody else. Because obviously, they if they do get caught, they want minimum amount of jail time. So would that be another example of where 
the outward expression is actively manufactured and managed Very rather much. than it being something that we would traditionally describe as a as a an internal emotional response yeah. to something. Well, you could argue that the emotion is led to getting some cash from the bank, albeit in a very unpleasant way. So they may have an ulterior motive of wanting to feed their family. But yeah, there's very little emotion involved. It's more calculated, isn't it? To rob that bank, to be on that sporting pitch or that athletics track. They're making very calculated guess or assumptions as to what's going to happen next. That would imply that, that we have the capacity to access the physiology without necessarily accessing the emotion. Yeah. yeah. And that actually the physiology and the emotion can, in some cases, not necessarily be linked. Mm -hmm. So you could also say is aggression is um, actional behaviour that's commonly associated with emotions such as anger and frustration. So that could be somebody hurt in some way. And this can take many forms such as verbal or physical abuse, threats, gestures, um, people being slapped, hitting, that kind of thing. So that that would almost be kind of like a, a demonstration of I suppose physical conflict then wouldn't it yeah because there's also there's also the acts of aggression which are and it's that lovely phrase that people use a lot passive aggressive mm -hmm. that are more about a battle of words where we wield our words to undermine another or to imply something without saying or to to push a response in someone else that that makes them feel less than yeah through our words so in those situations then there seems to be different types of response that we need to be aware of in terms of making decisions over which response is most appropriate in terms of managing the outcome to our desired end result yeah so that aggression can be considered in two different ways is it hostile or is it instrumental so obviously given the hostile one would be about the bank robber and the instrumental one would be about wanting to go out and achieve something so is that instrumental and that's almost the catalytic the catalytic state of anger yeah, it could well be, yeah. And that would seem to imply that one is more positive than the other, but I don't think it's as simple as that, is it? No, it isn't, because instrumental could be um, in a whole host of different contexts, couldn't it? Somebody might be instrumentally aggressive in trying to assert dominance over someone, take the, take the power away from someone else. So you and I both have very different experiences in conflict management mm -hmm. from different angles yeah. in different contexts. In terms of some of those then, 
what's helpful in terms of an awareness of our responses that's going to help de-escalate those situations, help put us back into situation where maybe we're more in control of our emotional response in the situation in general? It's recognising that state, that emotional change, isn't it? So angry people generally kind of take, can be two general kind of basic beliefs, really. Is a situation unfair or do they believe they have no control over a situation? Or, or an outcome. So what happens next? Well, so those could be... Um, and we've had a discussion about this before. So it could be the perceived, the origins of a perceived threat. Notice there is no actual, there might be the illusion of a threat or the understanding that it could be a threat, but there may not actually be one. So that could include also humiliation, injustice and frustration, which then leads to lower self, lower safety and self-esteem. And, and it's a possible response to anxiety, which can lead to an increased sense of anger and aggression, which could lead to violence as well. And then that goes round in kind of like a circular loop, because the more the perceived threat is, the lower self sense of safety and self-esteem is there may lead to more anxiety which may lead to increased anger aggression and violence so it almost becomes a self-feeding loop yeah yeah yeah. because remember we talked a bit about the bataris box yes and how quickly that spirals downwards so we go over the bataris box again is yeah. my behaviors my actions affect your behaviours and your actions which then affect my behaviours and actions or oh, sorry not actions sorry attitude so my attitude affects my behaviour which affects your attitude which then affects your behaviour which then affects my behaviour so really our responses and whether that's spoken or action it's all part of a conversation and an ongoing dialogue it's just whether or not we're doing that through words yeah actions are and, and another and the other array of responses isn't it mm -hmm. and it could be something as as there may be a line manager and they've got to keep dealing with one particular individual and this line manager might go oh, not him again not her again before you've even met that individual and that person has then picked up on those kind of signals and cues is this got this manager is not interested they just want to get them or get out of the site really instead of that manager having a better frame of reference even though they aren't pleased with this person coming in being continuously in and out that door they'll get a better result and better change in behaviours and a better change in attitude for the other person. It just struck me, Rich, that it's a bit like eating emotional garlic, isn't it? That no matter what we do, it still leaks out of our pores. Mm. <laughs> and yeah. The other people in the room <laughs> hear of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm, because 
that's that concept of entering the starting point of that interaction of that conversation already with our assumptions preset. So we're already going in with a partial script created in our mind, which means that we're focusing on our script and we're not listening. Absolutely, yeah. Which yeah. is one of those hearts that drives an anger response sometimes in us as well, which is that I'm not being heard. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So there, there you go. Let's go back to that model again. Is that perceived sense of frustration because that person is not being heard mm -hmm. and so if that person keeps continuously thinking they're not being heard they get even more frustrated with that situation again that leads down to that Batoris box of my attitude then and my behaviors then get worse and worse and worse over a period of time and it's very hard to come back from that or it can be the irony is, is that in all of those stages, those emotions are being created by our inner thoughts about what we're experiencing. Yep. The decisions we're making turn, where this is just unjust, have we been heard, have we not? Are we being threatened, are we not? Yeah, absolutely. So what can we do to start to manage some of that? So I'll just skip off onto that before we go on to that, Ali, if you don't mind. So there's five situations of managing a aggressive situation. And that's a situation, then the appraisal, then the anger itself, uh, an indecision, and then conflict. Tell me a bit about those. So if you've got a situation where there's been the idea of a slight. Mm -hmm. So maybe in a pub, somebody's accidentally barged into someone. Somebody's um, maybe stepped on somebody's foot if it's a crowded place. So that's the situation. Your appraisal might be that was that done on purpose? Was that was that not? Well, how big or how small is that individual? Are they male? Are they female? Um, and obviously what that person is themselves. So maybe a case of, sorry, pal, mistake, all, all over and done with, or it might be lead to an aggressive situation. Where their response, rather than being sorry and acknowledging, actually almost is pushing the blame for that interaction onto you. So you're yes. now in a point of heart offence and defense yeah yeah yeah. which then starts the appraisal which then leads to the anger will somebody get angry over that you know they may say apologies you know hands up made a mistake or buy another pint or whatever it is that person might not accept that apology mm -hmm. and so sorry yeah i said something else it should be um inhibition it wasn't something I said earlier, began with I. So the inhibition is centered around, say, is there a power dynamic here? Um, so if it's in a pub, it could be how many, how much each person had to drink. Yeah. Or if we go into a workplace scenario, 
that person slighted, was that done by someone who is in a higher position of management, leadership? And then that person who is, say, on the shop floor compared to a more senior manager may have to bite their tongue. They could be scared about losing their job. So would that be a situation where you are, where your boundaries are being encroached upon, your values are being placed in doubt or challenged? Yeah, very much so, yeah. And you feel unable to push back or verbalise that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that that can then lead on to conflict potentially, okay. unless it doesn't get dif- diffused. Mm-hmm. Miscommunication upon miscommunication. Absolutely. So that's what it's all about, really. Is the dynamics are um, what leads up to. Conflict are misunderstandings, uncertainty, fear of change, loss of power, fear of failure and disappointment. That's that links back into that idea of anger being a defensive action. Yeah, it can be, yeah. Okay. So what happens next? Well, then we can go into physiology if you want. Mm-hmm. And talk about that. So, what happens when um, our physiological state changes when we um, get angry? So, nothing happens really around 100 heartbeats a minute. Anything that below is we are nice, calm, and collected. And now the brain works. So, you've got the reptilian brain, the mammalian brain, and then there's frontal cortex. Mm -hmm. So the more our heart rate is going around and beating faster and faster, the less blood flow is going to the frontal cortex, isn't it? So what's the frontal cortex responsible for? Logical thinking, rational thinking. So we're now, as the heartbeat escalates, we are getting our our more instinctual drivers are starting to kick in rather than the rational, logical, unemotional side that's able to evaluate from almost three steps back. Yeah. Okay. So between so 115 to 145 beats a minute, that is our optimal survival and combat performance levels. We are good at complex motor skills, and our visual reaction time is very good, and our cognitive reaction time is very good because we are, I suppose, using our subconscious to survive. I suppose that's ultimately the purpose of the fight, flight, freeze mechanism, isn't it? Is to get us quickly to that optimal survival state. And 115 beats a minute, our fine motor skills deteriorate. And 145 beats a minute, complex motor skills deteriorate. However, that can be trained in. So um, do hard training under intense pressure those fine motor skills and those complex motor skills can be improved a little bit so you're able to manage them. So that's all to do with hard training and things like that. So but like for, think of people in the military, professional mm-hmm. fighters, that kind of thing. But for most people going about their day-to-day stuff, that's not something that is going to be within their skill set, but that's also why we start to do stupid stuff when we get to that point of emotive response 
We'd yes, indeed. We, we wouldn't be are more uncoordinated, are more likely to let our mouths run away with us without thinking of the impact of our words because, because that logical brain is no longer in control. We're in full-on emotional response. Absolutely. So at 100, above 175 beats a minute, it's irrational fighting or free, fleeing or freezing comes in. Submissive behaviour, vasoconstriction, so reducing, so that helps to reduce the bleeding from any wounds and cuts lacerations. Mm -hmm. So often when people have reported being stabbed, they've thought they've been punched because oftentimes that knife has been, sometimes that knife has been left in and there's no blood coming out, so don't feel the that on there. There was a story of a guy who thought he got punched in the head. He got home, looked in a mirror, and there was a knife handle sticking out of his head. I don't know why anybody on the street hadn't told him. But anyway, so on, upon seeing that, he collapsed and faint, he fainted. Well, that's also, is it not, why there are all these um, real stories of people capable of doing amazing things in those points of high stress, like lifting cars because their child is trapped underneath it, or yeah. that should be well outside their capabilities in any normal day of the week yet in that moment our physiology enables that for that fleeting second that's required yeah my understanding is um the brain puts on restrictions to how much we can lift otherwise we can lift more than what we're capable of and it just tears the body apart so that mm -hmm. stops that as a protection system and then moving on, so at 175 beats and above 175 beats is voiding bladder and bowels. Nobody, as far as I'm aware, has any reason to know why they do this. My opinion is that one, it helps you to be lighter if you move more efficiently. And two, is if it was a, you know, we're out in the savannas as um, hunter gatherers still, if you don't smell very pleasant, that animal's probably less likely to eat them as well. Well, you see that sometimes in the defence mechanism, even sometimes in amongst our, dom our domestic animals. Mm, yeah, yeah. And it's, it, yeah, I think, I think that makes perfect sense. It's like I'm a less attractive offering now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so then gross motor skills, such as running, charging, etc., are pretty good, and they're at their highest performance level. So 175 beats a minute then is cognitive processing deteriorates so that's a loss of less blood there's lots of peripheral vision tunnel vision so when people are engaging in um conflict there's all this posturing to go and look how big i am and so people get gauged get closer and closer and you get more tunnel vision then some again get sucker punched they can't see that coming yeah your peripheral vision has narrowed to the point where you're not aware of getting focused on that individual straight in front so this is where people get in all sorts of problems. Mm -hmm. And then there's loss of depth perception and loss of near vision as well. And there's auditory exclusion or tunneled hearing. Is that where we're getting close to the point of shutdown because we're in total overload? Because that I, sounds almost as if we're getting to the point where about, we're about ready to for everything to shut down so we can play dead. Potentially, or we're also in 
a hyper-focused mode of that's my target in front of me and that's what I'm going to go for. You know, they're in my way. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's that fight, mm-hmm. fight, flight, freeze thing. Mm-hmm. And then this is what we're talking about, really, is at 220 beats a minute thereabouts, depending how old someone is, that's very conflict common in conflict situations. What happens then? Well, then that's fighting time. People ain't thinking. People are slugging out, as it were. They're just reacting. Yeah. So how do we get down from escalating all the way from up there all the way back down? I'm sure you have some suggestions you're going to give me. Yep. So there's give people space. That Whether that's metaphorical space before it gets that situation, or actual physical space and put barriers in between. You know, the more energy that other person has to expend, the more tired they'll get, and the more tired they, that person becomes, then they're going to be a lot less, more or less inclined, hopefully, of continuing with that conflict. It strikes me as well that with the, with the narrowing of the peripheral vision, that actually you can create space just by changing not even so much the proximity but the location and the proximity the angle oh because what you're then doing is you're pushing and forcing the widening of that peripheral field aren't you yeah that could well work mm-hmm. you can you can give a go if you wish Ali. <laughs> <laughs> I may well have done a few times. <laughs> I'm sure you have. <laughs> but it's also less combative, isn't it? If you move and you turn sideways rather than face on, because face on is, there's a reason why they call it squaring off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And obviously there's signs to look out for that as well. People take a step back, start clenching fists and mm-hmm. generally posturing before that happens. Mm-hmm. Make themselves look bigger. So if we are in those situations, then it's all it's about acknowledging what's going on with that person, listening to what they say, because we, who wants to really get involved in fights? Not many people. Well, there's very rarely a clear-cut winner, though, is there? Hmm. So if we can obviously mention that before, acknowledge that person, get that person to sit down, because then that automatically lowers the um, heart rate mm-hmm. and get some tea and biscuits. Well, it's also less, is, or rather, it's also more difficult to posture when you're sitting down than when you're standing. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. So you're starting to limit the capacity for those, those things that are going to escalate the, the mm-hmm. fight response. Yeah. By making those more more challenging to actually achieve. Yeah. And this is again, if this is kind of like a work situation, and there's a customer come in, they've been upset about whatever the product or service that they've had from you. And there's that person who's front facing. You may need to swap those people around and bring somebody else in. So then that again can help neutralize the anger. Because all their main point of focus would have been on that one individual. Well, that's a bit like resetting the conversation, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. 
as long as you're not going back over everything else that has been said before to upset that person even more. Because mm-hmm. what you yeah. want is a win-win situation for both people, really. Well, nobody, nobody I know likes having to constantly repeat themselves and feel as though they're never getting any further forward because that's just a further slight and hurt, isn't it? An indignation that you then end up piling one on top of another. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Again, this is more of a work situation-based thing is after there has been some form of conflict within the workplace, whether that is from a customer or actually within a work colleague, the management need to know about that as well and who you're dealing with. Um, if the person's gone away on sick leave or stressed for a bit, you need to go and ask the medic doctor, GP, if it's okay for that person to come back into work or put them in a different area away from that situation and get them some counselling and things like that. So, so you need to look and fact find about what's happened, why it happened and everything else. Like get that person some counselling, some other kind of support if they need it, which they most likely will. That can leave the up person then feeling very vulnerable to further attacks, further slights, further insults. And that is also reportable in the HSE as well. Well, that comes back to how much are you hearing and how much are you seeing? I'm going to repeat a phrase that I, that I said last week because I'm quite fond of it now because I thought, oof, yeah, I'm sounding quite Yodaish. And that was... Um, most of us can see, but very few of us see. Most of us can hear, mm-hmm. but very few of us hear. And that's about the how caught up in our own stories, our own dialogue, our own internal reasoning we are, rather than being caught up in the other person. Yeah. And as we have in a chat earlier today, I was mentioning, I was listening to... Um... A bit with Mike Mandelin. Yeah. Yeah. And as they were saying in their little chat it, about the 80-20 principle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you explain that? Go for it. You go for it. Okay. I think it's the Prato principle, Prato's law, or the 80-20 principle is people do 80% of something and that's going to give them the most success. And then there's 20 percent which is something else i can't remember exactly but that's also about which part of that we're actually paying attention to because Mm in in a conversation in a dialogue that's based on assumptions actually that 80 percent may be in effect misdirection your drivel maybe verbal posturing mm-hmm. verbal dressing that in a way masks the true nature of the heart yeah. the fear that vulnerability the 20 percent, if we can get to it, if we spot it is where we find that there may well be shared territory mm-hmm. shared understandings or a greater understanding of actually what the person's expressing. That's where the actual conversation is, isn't it? Yes. And so there's that phrase in NLP, isn't there, of chunking up? There is. Yeah. So you want to look at chunking up to find out really what that problem is instead of going around that routine of 
ruminating and going over those same old conversations that have led to nowhere in the first place and find that common ground. So pull yourself out of the noise and can concentrate on what the actual driver and purpose of the conversation, what the, what the shared goals actually are. Yeah. Because that 80% is probably trading insults and previous hearts rather than acknowledging where there is shared ground. Yeah. You've done this and I've done that and finger pointing. Yeah. When in actual fact, the reason you're having an argument or a disagreement in the first place is because there's something you both feel very strongly about. Yes. There's something that both of you want as a different response. Mm-hmm. So in a way, even though you both want a different response, that in itself is shared territory. It is. It is. And it, people will complain about um, something not being done their way. And they'll moan about that. But there's, as the old saying is, there's more than one way to skin a cat. <laughs> so even though it's not done the way you want it done, however, how that other person has done it is perfectly fine, perfectly acceptable. Well, that reminds me of my favourite line manager ever, who was open enough to recognise that it was okay if the solution I came up with wasn't the one they would have, as long as it was a solution that worked. Mm -hmm. And they would be comfortable with that. And sometimes we get so caught up and so attached to our solution that we forget that actually the main driver is a solution that's mutually acceptable. And that doesn't necessarily have to be our original thought. Mm -hmm. And who's to say that somebody else's solution isn't better than what yours is? Or that there isn't a middle ground between the two that gives a better solution for both of them. And that's that win-win situation that we're after. Yeah. So the example is given on my conflict management course, if anybody's interested in um, signing up for one, is going out for a pizza, or going out for a few beers, and and you've just got enough money to buy one pizza between two people. One of you is vegetarian, the other one likes meat. So having a old cheese pizza, the other person is not going to be happy with that. A cheese and tomato pizza, not going to be happy with that. An old meat pizza, the other person is not going to be happy with that, the one who's vegetarian. So the ideal solution would be then, so what, what they could do is either buy cheese pizza and next time they would go and have a meat pizza, but the other person would be happy with that because they're vegetarian. So that's not win-win. So the ideal situation or solution could be then is a 50-50. Depending if the vegetarian would like having a bit of sharing a bit of meat on that on their pizza. Or two smaller ones. Potentially. But you don't get as much with two smaller ones, do you? No, you don't. No. But I said you've just got enough for one pizza, that's it. Again, yeah, it's all about finding that common ground, what the best solution is for all parties concerned. Well, I think that's also 
about being open to alternative suggestions. Mm -hmm. So you might only have enough for one large pizza, but that might mean that you also have enough to get two alternatives to pizza. Potentially, yeah. But the kebab shop only does pizzas. <laughs> 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 Rich is going, don't mess with my metaphor. Yeah. So it is about compromising, finding what is the best solution for people. I mean, I've done quite a lot in terms of workplace dispute resolution. Mm -hmm. A lot of negotiation, worked extensively with unions. And the rules there and the, the principles also apply equally. It's about understanding where there's shared ground and where there's shared territory so that you can build from there. Yeah. Whether that shared territory is a mutual need for change that this is not good enough or a shared belief of this is something we both value. Mm-hmm. Well, because I guess in the union's cases, it would be keep employees at work with the, the best offer that they can get. In an ideal scenario, both sides want the same thing, mm -hmm. which is for the business to be able to continue operating profitably. They just want it in a fair and equitable manner. If we are willing to be open enough in those conversations and to listen well enough in those conversations, then sometimes even though the end result might mean changes that not everybody's going to be happy with, mm -hmm. you can reach a point where there's an acknowledgement that this is actually the way we have to take that while because sometimes that resolution is about compromise it's about recognizing that actually the ideal cannot be achieved here so what's the next best thing that yeah. we can we can reach and is this something that is palatable to both of us how do we make it palatable to both of us to say, right, okay, this is now acceptable? You can't do that if you don't talk and you don't listen. Yeah. If you don't get curious enough to ask questions and say, tell me more. Mm -hmm. So right at the start, what we were also talking about was, because I know that sometimes a lot of people struggle with that, that sense of feeling as though those physiological responses are almost taken over and they're out of control of that. But there's things we can do to help put us back in charge of our physiology. There are. I'm reminding myself of a story that we had um, a chat about this morning as well. And the power of silence. Uh, a relative of mine, he had some work done around his house and he hired a Bit of a dodgy worker, shall we say. Uh, this particular individual, he did did the work and he was after 
Um, but this dude, he wanted, he wanted paying. So anyway, he was getting all upset. So he said, he said, look, when you do pay, when you do complete what I'm asking you to complete, then you get paid. So he's screaming and shouting down the phone at him, asking him, cussing him out and whatever else. And all my relative did was just remain silent. Then afterwards, it was all, all that cussing and swearing and threats and everything else. Because big old chapel bowl accounts. My relative, he said that um, this chap was as meek as a mouse. He's like a, he's like a lamb to slaughter, basically, because he had said nothing, not, not reacted to anything that was going on, not taking a bait. He'd broken the pattern. He broke the pattern, yeah. That's that going back to that 8020s, break that pattern, find out what the real discussion is. So anyway, the guy came up, fixed the job, and my relative had his money there waiting for him. So he was there and this bloke came in. He had, had his boy who was about seven years old. And being a big man, he's like, here you are, take the money. You look after that. They were around to have a bit more discussion about the work and everything else if he wanted doing and all this sort of stuff. Anyway, they they departed and left my relative. Travelling home, they got home and the dad must have asked, where's the money, son? Was that? Ooh, I don't know. So he had to ring up my relative asking, Where's um have you got is that, have that money left behind? He goes, Yeah, it's left you left it here on the radiator. <laughs> so the power of silence, as you say, Ali, breaking that pattern can be very powerful in that negotiation. And you can do you can break that pattern in a number of ways. Mm -hmm. Because generally breaking the pattern means giving somebody a response they didn't anticipate. And that's not that violent response because that point you're starting to posture, that's what everybody's waiting for. That final point of escalation. That can be sometimes as simple and as powerful as acknowledging that says, you know what? I can see that you're really angry. That's right. I can see that this is really important to you. Mm -hmm. It's really obvious to me how important this is to you. Yeah. And that acknowledgement, especially when unexpected, again, is a pattern break. It's a point where both sides have to recalibrate their next response. It buys time and space. It allows the central nervous system to start to de-escalate a little bit, increment by increment. It's also then that script is running around in someone's head has been interrupted. It doesn't fit anymore. No. So what else are they going to come up with? Everything now has to be reassessed. In order to reassess it, you then have to reevaluate everything that's been said so far. It pushes the point of reflection. And that might be where you realise you've heard more than you thought you had. Because when when you reflect, when you when you re-listen to that, that's where sometimes 
you notice things that you hadn't noticed before because you were too caught up in your own assumptions in your own preparation for your next response. Now, the other thing is, is in that state break that we're talking about, we can learn to do that, that physiological change ourselves. We can build ourselves anchors mm -hmm. that help center us, that help de-escalate our physiological responses. Or you mentioned anchors, you can also break those anchors as well and install new ones. Yeah, so if you find that you have particular situations, and sometimes it can even be people, that because we might have had repeated interactions, which mm. which result in, in a less than pleasurable outcome for us, then we go in anticipating the end result before we've even got there. So our physiology is already in that heightened state, just by the mere suggestion of that person's name. Yes. We're already primed and four steps ahead in terms of our preparation to posture and potentially move to the aggressive action. What you reminded me of there as well, Ali, is so if it's a case of power dynamic and you've been said, right, go and see the manager, the manager wants to speak to you. Most people are already then anticipating something bad. Anxiety. It takes them back to then their childhood of going off to see the high headmaster or the school principal or whomever. A very common experience for most people with yeah. that. With that so we kind of regressed back to seven, eight-year-old maybe. And a point of vulnerability. Yeah. They're not the actual adult that that person is now. All of a sudden, the eight-year-old is in charge and showing up for that meeting. Yeah. The eight-year-old is walking towards the office, feeling very insecure and very vulnerable. Mm -hmm. When it could be the manager is giving you a pay rise. Or wants to ask a favour or say well done. Yeah. And that's also where, if we recognise how we experience those different things, because they're made up of component physiological signals, our, our emotional array the physiology of our emotions is actually quite limited. We have a lot of words for describing it, but most of them are context-driven. Mm -hmm. And that's why when we actually look at the physiology of things like anxiety, we change the setting and all of a sudden we have excitement. Definitely. It's contextually driven. Our thinking in effect, helps us decide whether we're anxious or excited. It provides the context of that emotion, and then it helps us place it in the box. That means that we can create a trigger for ourselves with a positive association for those feelings. We can create triggers for ourselves that allow us fast access to states of calm and meditation. You see that a lot with children that have like um, their favourite toy, the teddy bear that, that you know, you minute you hand them it, they get the calm comes over them. Or their favourite blanket they drag around everywhere up until they are however old as an adult. Or you might come across a childhood toy that has been stuffed in the back of a drawer for a long time, but the minute you hold it in your hands, you, the association of it, is one of comfort and calm mm -hmm. because 
at some point that was such a repeated experience for you that your body, the minute it recognized the feel of that trigger, the association of it, it said, I know what to do. Oh, I know what you need me to do. Right, okay, flood with feelings of calm. But we can do that ourselves. We can build those associations ourselves with whether that's maybe a coin we carry in our pocket, maybe a thumb stone if we like crystals, that we can almost worry our thumb across, that we can start to associate that feeling of calm, that feeling of meditative settlement with. Yep. We can create really simple ones with maybe finger squeezes. Mm -hmm that we can access anywhere that allow us that speedy access route to that sense of calm, that sense of balance. Yeah. I did read a story quite a while ago now, and it was about this chap who'd come in, came home from work, and he would take five minutes before he actually entered home. And he in his garden, he had or a little bush that he would just brush past every day. And all his worries, all his concerns would be left with that bush to be dealt with. Mm -hmm. And then I go home to a happy family. So you could use physical anchoring points as you're going into, say, work or into your home or somewhere else. Yeah, it could be anything. It could be a scent, a favourite smell mm. that you that helps yeah. it could be something that you touch or hold it could be an action you do or a sound absolutely i was going to say sense are very good because they bypass the whole of the system goes straight to the back of the brain mm -hmm. same as music is incredibly powerful mm. and music for most people even if they don't class themselves as major music fans, there'll be certain tracks that have very strong emotional connotations for us or very strong emotional links. And music can also be used to calm down an angry situation. So who can really get angry if... Um... Braille Williams is playing. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say some <laughs> classical music. Uh-huh. <laughs> Well, how many of us have we get down in the dumps we get a bit miffed with the world we're feeling a bit down in ourselves our negative inner inner critic is giving us giving it what for and what's the music we pick it's not the happy cheery dancey stuff it more often than not will be the stuff that actually mirrors the messaging that our inner critic is delivering for us i'm gonna say radiohead <laughs> <laughs> Something along those sort of lines. Uh -huh. It will be something that matches the mood of the inner critic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yet, if we chose to actively change that, that and not play matchy matchy, then we start to alter the physiological response at the same time. Change your change one world and change the other world. Well, that's about recognising that our emotional state is something we create. Mm -hmm. That then leads back to what we start at the beginning really was aggression. How do you want to channel that aggression? 
Do you want to dissipate it or do you want to utilize it? Mm -hmm. Is it the physiology of it that you're utilizing or is it the thoughts and responses you're utilizing? Yeah. Mm. And in summary, we've give you a recap at the beginning of where we started off in the part one. Yeah, was it the cold beans? Cold beans? Cold beans, burning embers. Yeah. The spectrum of anger and the impact it has on us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a brief overview does aggression lead to anger? Does it lead to violence? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it depends on the context, mm -hmm. how useful it is. Talk about the physiology of what happens to the heart rate when dealing with those kind of situations, the perceived threat and how that leads to lower self-esteem and lower sense of safety. And it's that expression of vulnerability, isn't it? That is that outward response to the inward vulnerability. Yeah. Um, what happens, this is more based in work and reporting and getting support if you're in a con confrontational situation from work or even if not in work, maybe uh, from your friends and family at home. And seeking the 20% of shared understanding or shared intention. Yeah. Rather than spending your time in the 80%. Absolutely. Finding a win-win situation and breaking those patterns to something more useful. And taking control and recognising that we can manage our own physiology, that we can, with a bit of practice, take more active control of that so that we are the ones that choose our physiological responses. Yeah. And one of the guitarist box again. So by changing your behaviour, is the best situation to change attitudes and other people's behaviours and attitudes as well. So on that note, if anybody's struggling with anger management, they want to, or with situations of conflict, and they want to have a conversation with either you or I, then they are more than welcome to contact us through our email. They can DM us through our Facebook pages, through our LinkedIn profiles. And all of the contact details are available on the podcast. They are. And my books as well. And your books as well. <laughs> yeah. So if you do like this, um, any of our content, please do like, share and subscribe and all that good stuff. Mm -hmm. Let us know. Yeah, absolutely. We'd love to hear back and see what any other podcasts, etc., that you may like us to talk about. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think that sounds like until next time, Rich. Until next time. Mm -hmm. Cheerio. Thank you.